Hey everyone. In this episode, there are mentions of suicide and sexual harassment. No details, but we wanted to give you a warning. You want to count us down? Yes. Three, two, one. now (laughs) you're tuning in to us baby today we are going to be talking about burnout Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and what that's like yeah and what we've what we've experienced (laughs) yeah what we've experienced what we're well for me personally currently experiencing um and um and like it's cyclical and and I think this is something that a lot of people especially through the pandemic times have experienced if you've continued to work through that. Um, and, uh, and I think also, uh, how our workplaces don't necessarily help, uh, get you through burnout or, uh, prevent burnout in any way. Um, which is like really funny to me. Well, let's jump in, shall we? (laughs) So you were saying something really cool before we got on um, about like the the things that happen to you when you experience burnout. Right. So typically there's 12 stages to burnout, right? So you have excessive drive or ambition and you're pushing yourself to work harder and harder. And that in turn leads to neglecting personal care and needs and then you have like displacement of conflict where you, you just can't, you can't deal with it. Um, and then what ends up happening with that is you feel as if there's no time for non-work related needs in your life. And then that turns into withdrawal, behavior changes, denial that it's even happening. <laughs> and um, you start to experience depression and emptiness. And then you get to that collapse moment where it's mental and or physical exhaustion and collapse. Mm -hmm. And what I was talking about is a lot of the times you hear how to prevent it, but it's all, it's all things you would need to do before you're hyperly um, ambitious and neglecting yourself. But for the most of us, we don't start (laughs) thinking about, stopping the burnout until we're collapsing Mm -hmm. and it's like I want to know what to do while I'm collapsing like (laughs) I can't like I can't eat a healthy diet and practice good sleeping habits when I'm burnt out like Mm -hmm. I what the actual heck are they telling me (laughs) that's right I said heck everyone (laughs) 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 but it's just like and so I'm confused right like I'm I'm confused it's like I'm tired. I'm denying how tired I am. I'm collapsing. And then, you know, everyone's like, oh, did you drink enough water? Did you get... (laughs) It's back. Um, Did you drink enough water? Have you exercised? Have you this? And it's like, literally, I have no time for myself. Like, Mm -hmm. what am I supposed to do? I'm tired. <laughs> yeah, and specifically, Rebecca hates when people say, uh, drink your water. Did you remember to yes. drink your water today? Because you already drank literally, like, not a gallon, but probably a lot of water close to it, at least a, a day. Um, yes. For your health situation. For your so, health. That's yeah. what it's called, for your health. <laughs> <laughs> for your health. Wow. Oh, wow. Yes. We're tired. Can you tell? <laughs> we are tired people. And so I, we actually didn't plan to record this episode about burnout today. It was going to be something else, but it, I, I didn't have like a total breakdown, but I, I just had a moment where I realized that I, uh, didn't have any empathy left. Um, and I was looking at, looking for support and it wasn't 
um, available to me or I didn't ask it in the way that was clear to the people around me what that what that looked like and it mm. caused kind of not a mm, it caused a moment of conflict with the people that I volunteer with at Main Transnet because I so basically what happened was um, we have a few different things I we have a youth discord server and we have a adult discord server that I'm on both sides of I facilitate a bunch of support groups which you know mm. that's a lot of energy alone um, and as a moderator, sometimes you're handling folks who need emotional support. Um, it's not just me. The Discord is open for anybody to give and receive support. Um, that's what it's there for. And there was one person in particular who was going through uh, um, a difficult moment, and I was trying to work it through with them in real time, and they needed transportation to get back from where they were to back home. Mm. And... It was just a weird moment where it felt like there was nothing we could do, which is already a frustrating position to be in. Um, right. And I was there, I was trying to be emotionally supportive for this person and then also say, I can't help you. You know, mm. like that's yeah. hard. And it was on top of all of these other things going on in my life personally. Um, the teens were not doing very well that day. We just had an unfortunate circumstance with someone else in our community that we didn't know very well but it uh enacted our suicide response protocol which was really difficult as well it's always sad to have that happen yeah. and even if we don't know the person personally it's emotionally draining to know that someone in your community somewhere didn't make it so now uh <laughs> i like got to this point where no i didn't feel like anybody was helping me and i felt like i was the only one working with this person and i couldn't do anything and they weren't offering anything as well because there's nothing you can do in the, in yeah. that moment unfortunately and uh because we just don't have all the resources always and so i just like <laughs> left all of the servers i left the group chats I and I went to bed it was like 1 a.m and I told the person I'm sorry I don't have anything else I can do for you they ended up reaching out to someone else okay. it sounds like everything worked out all is well in the world again but like it was a moment where I was like wow I've lost yeah. empathy I was pissed off at everybody <laughs> um I was a angry at the situation angry at myself for putting myself in that situation when I knew that I could have put up some boundaries with the volunteer situation ahead of time and I didn't that led to just a kind of like exhausted uh moment um and and I felt burnt out and I've kind of been saying for the past few weeks like I feel like I'm on the the verge of burnout I feel like I'm on the verge of yeah. burnout I kept saying that over and over again and then not doing anything about it <laughs> you didn't eat an exercise <laughs> yeah well it's <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm not exercising. I haven't been, which like definitely is not helping my anxiety that I already have. And mm. right now I'm freelancing and I'm volunteering a lot of my time at this organization. And it's all like things that I want to be doing. It's not that any of this is work that doesn't fulfill me or work that I don't want to be doing. It's all good. Yeah. Except when it's all emotionally taxing. Um, right supporting other people and not supporting yourself in the process is so tiring. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that was a, and that's a lesson that I've learned before and just decided not to uh, <laughs> enact the self-care that I needed to do. Right. And at the same time, it's hard to do that when you feel really obligated to be doing the things that you said you were going to do. Um, and there's already a culture set up that I was walking into of everybody's doing something all the time and nobody is taking the vacations that they need to actually step away from the work. Oh, the culture wasn't cultivating for you to take breaks and yeah. take care of yourself. Yeah. You felt you had to step up in the same way everyone else was. Right. Right. That's very, very hard. Like that's. Yeah. You know, I, I think a lot of times people in their ambition and drive and how they handle things, whether they're a director of, you know, a nonprofit or, you know, a chief of police or, you know, whatever they may be, I don't think they sometimes realize how their 
inability to productively have a good work-life balance affects their subordinates. And, you know, like working 10 years in law enforcement and watching these people push themselves to the brink every day, you know, responding to emergencies is not easy. (laughs) And they're told, yeah, if you have this emergency and this comes up, you have to leave that one and go to this one, right? And sometimes it's back to back to back. And sometimes it's something like, for example, oh, you're on the scene of a car accident directing traffic and the fire department's, you know, dealing with the injuries and you get a call for a fight, you go down to the fight, someone else is injured, so you're, you're helping that injured person and you're realizing, gosh, so many injured people in the world. Then you get a call where a kid is suicidal. So you go and you try to talk them down, you know, and it's just like thing after thing after thing and they're rewarded for it mm-hmm. and there's no debrief. And it's like, I, I don't know how you're expected to not experience adrenaline jumps and dumps every day and burnout every day and or week. Like, you know, it's like sometimes it doesn't hit you all at once. Sometimes it's little bits and pieces. And then when you're in that culture of, oh, everyone else is just able to do it, I should be able to do it too, right? One, everyone's different. We also don't see what our superiors are doing to relax and to self-care because we're only seeing them in the workspace. Mm -hmm. And so when they aren't taking time off, we just assume they're not, right? Like We just assume (laughs) that they're not doing anything, so why should I take the time to do that? Because I want to do well. I I care about this because a lot of times we burn ourselves out because we care a lot. You know, people don't burn themselves out over things they don't care about. (laughs) It's true. I mean, and if they do, I think that's a whole different ball of wax. You know, is that a saying? Ball of wax? Ball of yarn? Yes, it is. A ball of wax. Yes. Um, I think, I think the people who burn themselves out, who don't care about the work, are the people who need the job to survive and mm. have no other choice uh, but to do shitty work for, I, I think part of it is shitty work without uh, a ton of workers' rights uh, yeah. in the workplace and maybe doing two jobs at the same time that they don't like uh, that's like just a wicked amount of hours, um, which gets overwhelming very quickly. But when we're living in this place where you need two jobs uh, to make ends meet, I mean, that is a recipe for disaster right there. Right. Um, Because you're already struggling financially to stay afloat, meaning you're you're just making it by to survive. And to be in constant survival mode is a fast track to burnout, let alone folks who are doing a lot of emotional labor in their job. Um, and then maybe not even being financially comp, which I <laughs> always wonder, how do you financially compensate for emotional labor? I mean, that's right. a, that's a whole other thing. And it makes me think about, um, when you were telling me how your health wasn't well when you were working, because it probably was very stressful. <laughs> and then you got yeah. all of this other shit going on, um, which is then causing your health to fail, which then causes more stress because you're like, oh, I'm unwell, I have to go to the doctors, then I'm missing work, and then I, you know, it's it becomes this big cycle, cycle. of just continued stress. Yes. Recipe for burnout, perfect storm for burnout. And you mentioned something really good because I, I wasn't thinking about it when I was talking and I was thinking about my burnout experience and and what you were describing where it's passion projects right you know you're passionate about it and it's burning you out because you're experiencing the secondhand trauma and you're putting a lot of yourself into it but the burnout people experience working for you know uh, retail stores or fast food or whatever it may be and they might have horrible situations they're in but they need it to survive and so they're in survival mode like 24 seven and I've been there like I mean I've been there running from fires and stuff like that not actually running but like in my car evacuating multiple times and and you you get into this headspace of survive 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 and then all of a sudden it's like I can't move like I can't 
I can't do it. But then you're afraid if you don't, you won't survive. And I feel for people, you know, where they need the money to survive. They need the three jobs to survive. And that burnout, you, you don't even get a chance to rest. Yeah. You know, like, you don't get a chance to stop. And that's just, like, something I didn't even think about. You know, and that's called privilege. Like, yeah, yeah, it like, is. It is called privilege. Um, I think about that a lot because I, if I'm experiencing passion fatigue slash burnout while I'm still able to stay afloat and walk away, I know so many people who can't walk away, uh, and mm-hmm. and I don't know so many people who can't walk away as well because I'm surrounded by people who are in the same sort of position where we're just worried about our emotions <laughs> rather than our physical needs, which is totally different totally different scenario and I think causes a very different kind of burnout especially if you don't have great insurance which I am very fortunate to to have great insurance which you know Mm -hmm. eventually I have to worry about I'm young enough and I'm still on my parents insurance which I might I won't be in a couple or uh, I guess less than two years I won't be on it anymore so that's something to think about. Like something that echoes in my brain is my dad saying, "Gotta think about benefits soon, there, kid." And I'm like, "Uh, okay, you know, um, yeah." Like, what are I benefits? <laughs> have, trying to still figure out what I want to do with my life, and then have to think about how I'm going to support my well-being in the future. Those two things don't intersect yeah. for me right now. <laughs> Any job that I can think of does not have benefits um, <laughs> of the ones that I want to be doing. So, you know. Right. And then it's just the availability of jobs, too, that even offer that. Um, in this, in right. this time period, it's a weird time yeah. uh, for trying to find a job. So... Anyway, sorry, I keep interrupting you. I'm very sorry about that. No, no, I want you to interrupt me. I this is <laughs> it's not a you or me show. It's a we show. A we um, show. <laughs> a we we show. A we um, we. Something that I wanted to ask you about because I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about how being on the helpline affected my mental health and like caused some burnout, which mm-hmm. feels very similar to the kind of like work that I'm doing. Uh, with volunteering and like being a support for people because being on call (laughs) sucked Uh, I hated it and there the way that ours was set up is we had shifts that we would be on call for that were seven or eight hours at a time but then we also had a week where we were backup for those people Mm. who were on call and that was 24-7 for a whole seven days oof I I hated it. I absolutely hated it. I dreaded it every time. And it doesn't happen. It didn't happen regularly. It was like every, depending on how many, well, it depended on how many staff people we had. At the time that I was there, we had a pretty full staff. It was maybe every two months you would have that shift. But when people started quitting uh, and leaving, we had to fill in those gaps, Yeah, uh, which was a time and a half. Um, So anyways, but I'm curious how that, how you being a dispatcher affected, because you're taking calls um, that are really sometimes very, like people are in crisis. So I'm really curious how you dealt with that and if that affected your, your mental health at all. Yeah. um, The first time I ever cried at work, ever, I'm a Capricorn. I never cry. (laughs) I know this is recorded, but I never cry. Anyways, um, first time I ever cried at work was when I was dispatching. I had come from doing phone line work for doctor's offices, plumbers, crisis lines, you know, mental health and suicide and sexual assault hotlines, and didn't ever really experience the types of things I experienced working in a dispatch center. I would say, so one, the dispatch center I worked for, they did at the time, they were doing fire and medical and law dispatching. So we dispatched for all the fire departments in the county, which also included um, ambulance services. And then we dispatched for two of the law enforcement agencies in the county. 
there were only two dispatchers on at a time, taking all the calls wow. for the entire county. I, I don't know how much of the public knows about how 911 works. I have no but, idea how 911 works. <laughs> it's really cool. Um, when I learned about it, I was like, whoa, you know, this is pretty neato. But basically, when you call 911, it hits a tower, right? You know, it hits the cell phone tower, whatever. And that tower tells that call where to go. And that's why sometimes if you see an accident on the freeway and you call 911, you don't necessarily get the highway patrol or the state trooper. You get like an ambulance service because whatever tower it hits, it's going to go to the dispatch center that that tower feeds. Like in the state of California and especially in like rural California, we have what's called like the 911 hub or it's not really called a hub, but basically it's the center that will take most of the 911 calls because it has the best tower um, reception. And so what was happening in our dispatch center is when an accident would happen, people would be calling in and instead of it hitting the tower for the dispatch center for the highway patrol, which was in a different county, it would come through us and we would go, you know, 911, what's your emergency? Oh, it's, you know, an accident. Let me transfer you. And then there's that stress of, oh my God, I got to transfer this person and there's been an accident. I hope it transfers because one, it's cell phones, that sucks. And then it would get to the point where, you know, people, I, I would say the majority of people are good, right? So everyone starts calling <laughs> and they all wanna make sure that help is coming for this person who's been in this wreck. Next thing you know, your entire screen is lit up mm. and every 911 line is lit up and so you answer it and you go 911 are you calling about the accident at wherever okay it's been called in thank you 911 are you calling about the accident 911 are you calling and you get into that mode you're stressed you're in that mode and you go 911 are you calling about the accident and the person screams no and you mm -hmm. go and you have to switch immediately and be like wow. what's your emergency where are you you know like all that stuff and that got to me one night because we had this horrible accident it was like, I think it was like three cars and four injuries and, and we were sending medics. So we were getting the calls for the medical. We were disp I was dispatching the medics and, and we just got call after call. And then these people were calling in for other emergencies. And I'm sitting there like, uh Oh, like this is too much. <laughs> and, uh, my trainer at the time, she's like, I can tell you're getting, you're getting to that point, go to the quiet room. And I was like, oh, cool, there's a quiet room. <laughs> like, you know. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if all dispatch centers do this or if this is like a woo-woo California thing because, you know, like I'm in California and it's we're kind of like a different place over here sometimes. It's it's woo-woo. It gets woo-woo <laughs> over there. <laughs> it gets really woo-woo. So she sent me to the quiet room. And in that quiet room, it was amazing because once you shut the door, you couldn't hear anything. You couldn't yeah. hear the consoles beeping. You couldn't hear the dispatchers talking. You couldn't hear the radios key up, nothing. And I was so grateful for that room. Oh my gosh, the quiet room and me were friends. Um, so, you know, so that was the night I cried because I was just like, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't believe so many people are having a crisis right now, you know? There are also times though where you start to become a little bit like, desensitized to people's emergencies because you're trained to be that calm voice. You're trained to be that person who coaches them through it until help gets there. And sometimes people call in and it's not an emergency, but you have mm -hmm. to still be like kind and courteous mm -hmm. and to them it is an emergency, but to you, you just handled a real emergency. And so you're kind of like, Ugh, you know, like you have that like feeling inside where you're frustrated that this person would call you and their tone is crisis and their, their urgency is crisis, but they're locked out of their house. Like it's not a crisis. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. but to them it is right. and to you it isn't. And so that balance was really difficult. They train you a lot in nervousness control and 
using your nervousness to propel you into like, I don't know, like help mode, I guess. I don't mm -hmm. know. I don't know how to explain it, but it's just kind of like, oh, you're stressed. Use that. Oh, you're nervous. Use it. And yeah. so I got very used to abusing my natural responses <laughs> and making them help me pursue versus mm. versus those responses making me stop and think. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but I do know it created something for me that made me not understand when to stop. You know, like you're when ignoring do you stop? your body's natural inclination to yep. you know, make a make a move stop or run away the other direction right yeah. like when we get into fight flight freeze or fawn and i think there's one mm -hmm. more that people have added that starts with an f that i can't remember but um flail you know mm, falter i don't know i well <laughs> i mean it Fuck could em. be any of those but well <laughs> i like that one um <laughs> What other F words are there? <laughs> I have no idea. I uh, Faceplant? I, I, that would be me. And when you are putting yourself in those situations and literally ignoring that part of your brain that's telling you what you're supposed to be doing in a crisis situation, what does that do when you are away from work and you are actually in a situation where your body is trying to make that decision and then you're like, I shouldn't run towards the bear. I should run away from the bear, you know? Right. like, And that's such, you know, that's an example that everybody uses with fight, flight, or freeze, or fawn. But, yeah. I mean, it's the same thing. Yeah. And you also never know what your brain is, your lizard brain, as they call it, is going to be doing in those moments anyways. <laughs> which, you know, that's something that I tell, uh, which a conversation I had often on the helpline with, with survivors, um, just to assure them, like, that it wasn't their fault because you never know what your brain is going to do in those instances. Oh yeah. Um, you have a story. I have a story about that. <laughs> the story. Oh my God. I can't believe I'm telling this story. Um, <laughs> when I was in dispatch, I was, I was at the point where I was not new and I was taking calls on my own. I was taking 911 calls. I was dispatching calls, but I still had someone listening in and, uh, taking over in case like I froze or mm -hmm. something because I was still I think I was like uh, at my fourth month or something like that so I was still in training but woman calls in and she says hi my boyfriend is going to attempt to commit suicide tonight and this is where you'll find him and this is the text he sent me and you know I'm typing as she's talking and and one of the things we ask you know, you're trained to ask when it's a suicide call is if they've attempted before and how, and if the person calling for the help believes that they'll try that method again, because mm -hmm. that helps us know what to send, you know, mm -hmm. all of that sort of thing. So I'm asking her, you know, like, Hey, is this um, something he's attempted before? And she's like, yes. And the next question I asked was, was he successful because yeah was he, this man that you're calling about who's alive and well you know well ish well, not well yeah but, yeah was he was successful alive. <laughs> at his attempt last time oh my gosh and she's quiet Rebecca. for a moment my trainer mutes my mic and she's looking at me like are you an idiot and oh, the God. other person is like laughing because she thinks it's so funny that I made this ridiculous oh, mistake. No. <laughs> I'm sitting there horrified, mortified that yeah, I said yeah, this. Yeah. And the girl's quiet and she goes, is there someone else I can talk to, please? Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> no. You know, she was very calm. She didn't even call the 911 line. Like she just called the help, you know, like the help, yeah. line, the dispatch line. <laughs> And I, I go, yes, please hold. And I send her to the other person. Oh, my God. And, you know, the other person helps. And, and he was fine. You know, he, he got the yeah, help he needed. Yeah. And it was a very good outcome. But <laughs> I, I was, 
Was he successful? Like, where did that what? come from? I never. It's like not even on your that. list. It's no. not even on your list of questions. Like, no, <laughs> they didn't let me live that down. Like, they some of, of the ones not. he still worked with not. me. They still ask me, like, were you successful? Like, oh, oh no, it's like leave me alone. But I probably made it in their training books of like what not to ask. They're like, do not ask what Rebecca said. Like, don't do it. She was so calm, too. She's like, can I please talk to someone else? And I was like, yes. Yes, you can. Don't talk to me anymore. I'm, in, I'm not good. Like, I'm just not good. <laughs> but, oh, yeah. Man. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. So, with, with the helplines, this happened to, to me, not at 911. Well, maybe a little bit, but... When I was doing like the sexual assault hotline, for example, um, we would get this guy who would call in and he would be like pleasuring himself while talking to us. Did that happen to you too? Like, is that a thing people do? It's never happened to me personally, but that was something that they warned us about in training of like, this has happened before. Um, It is not unusual for that to happen. Um, You can tell, sometimes they start asking questions um instead of actually talking about um what they went through and you can kind of tell that they are not a good actor in this moment you know they are Mm -hmm. like specifically trying to talk about sex so that they can get off never happened to me but that was something we were trained to just you can basically hang up whenever you want obviously oh okay, um, yeah and we we did too block the will we uh usually we get the phone number so what happens is we have a um call center that they get the first call from the person they call whoever's on on call that moment oh uh, the call center was me i was that person exactly exactly and then you I would, would have been the, the, call center. the advocate yes exactly so yeah. they call us um, and then we would, you know, call them back. So we had the phone number of the person and we usually would just put them on a do not answer list or like, you know, kind of like a, don't we call won't. back. yeah, don't call back, um, number, uh, kind of thing. Uh, again, that never happened to me, but it wasn't unheard of for that to happen. I don't know like why, because we're not there to do like, I just yeah. is weird to me. Like there are hotlines for sex. Like I don't I know. <laughs> I why feel are they like it's some the assault line. Like, I feel why? like it's some sort of way of asserting power over someone in a way that like hides your identity and isn't in public and doesn't actually like it's not an offense. Like that's not something that we can call and report to the police. You know, right. there's no law against. It's technically sexual harassment, but they don't have to give a real name to anybody. They're just yeah. giving a phone number, and they could even call the hotline and block their number. Yeah. You know? So. Interesting. Eh. Yeah. Yeah. I experienced that quite a few times working the, the sexual I'm assault so sorry. hotline. Yeah, it was bizarro land. Like, I, I didn't understand it, you know, because I'm sitting there, you yeah. know, you see it pop up on your screen, and you go, okay, okay, you know, like gotta help this person gotta help this person yeah. Yeah. and you answer it and it's just some sleazy person yeah. being gross and it's yeah. like oh my gosh i can't believe this this is a thing people do yeah you know? so that that was never a problem when i was there but what but what was an issue was um people who needed help but not really with anything that we could help them with but they would continue Mm. to call to you know work through their emotions and unfortunately you know we're not a crisis line we are a helpline the difference is if you are experiencing a mental health crisis you're feeling suicidal you're feeling like panicked in a in a sense that you need immediate attention potentially have to go to get mental health or medical care we're not there for that what we're there for is we i've helped people who are feeling overly emotional maybe like cannot regulate themselves and need help with regulation i've been there for that no problem um we're also there for connecting people to resources um but there have been some people who never fully disclosed their their survival story to me and Mm -hmm. don't really want to talk about that they want to talk about 
something that's more immediate in their life that, you know, we get folks who are looking for shelter. So maybe they're homeless uh, mm. or people who are um, just in bad situations. I'm thinking of this one person in particular who would go off on this long winded tangent and I couldn't really follow what is reality with them and yeah. what is what happened before what happens what is happening in their life currently and and that is a hard space to be in because you want to support these people and help them like and it helps them to talk about it if they don't have anybody else to talk about it with but I I can't do anything for you if you don't tell me you know that you are a survivor and that you what you need you know and eventually especially because I kept getting the same person over and over again which they didn't like because I think they really liked changing their story a lot. <laughs> um, oh. <laughs> which was another thing of like, I don't know what's real and what's not. Yeah. Um, so it was a difficult space to support that person when you already kind of know what their story is, but you also can't, you don't need to reveal that you know that either. Um, but eventually they kind of catch on. They like recognize your voice because they're calling so frequently, you know, yeah. that they're getting the same people. So, you know, it's just like a weird thing with helplines because it's and that was always a, a difficult struggle for me personally because I always wanted it to feel resolved at the end of the call right you know whereas when you're a I, I'm imagining when you're dispatching you're at least like you can end your moment with them because you know that someone else is taking over for you when right. I hung up with someone on a helpline I, do, I I don't know what's going on in their life after that Mm -hmm. I can only sometimes I know that an advocate because um, I was in education department so I can know that an advocate might follow up with them at some point and talk to them about their uh, resources but I don't know what's going on in their life after you know like one one call was so difficult in particular I was on the phone for maybe most calls are maybe a half an hour long this yeah. call was over an hour wow. because I was this person was feeling suicidal. She said she had attempted before, but she wasn't, she didn't have a plan. I didn't feel like I needed to pass her off to a crisis center, but she was also in the room with her child and couldn't disclose a lot of information to me for me to talk. So it was a lot of me filling the space, trying to ask vague enough questions to get details that she could answer kind of with a yes or no, or uh, like, or like kind of a workaround because she didn't want to expose her kid to this. And I, I, it was so difficult to get through it because I didn't know, I couldn't tell if I was helping this person or not. Yeah. And it felt like a failure. And that was oh. so hard to deal with. Feeling like you were failing someone who was looking to you for support. And there's, there's just not enough resources for survivors on that front. And you also never know when you disclose your survivor status to someone if they're going to believe you yeah. uh, or victimize you again or re-blame or blame the victim for their, their, uh, what happened to them. And, and obviously I never did that to anybody and that's why they call because they know that that's not going to happen, but it's always, um, a fear. it's always a fear and it's always when you become kind of the only lifeline for someone in that way. Mm-hmm. It puts so much pressure. And then <laughs> add on top of it that when you're on as the backup for the people who are on call first for 24-7, you're, you're also being that person's support. So if someone calls them, then they call to debrief their call with you. <laughs> and, yeah. when, and I had a very hard time like figuring out how that was useful, not for the, not for the person who was taking the call, but for the organization as a whole, because when, if you want to talk about burnout, you're just, and secondary trauma, you're just yep. sharing trauma with everyone. You're just yep. passing on that, that horrible thing that this person just told you. And I, I had a coworker who had a horrible call with a couple. They called together Oh. And and they really weren't talking about survivor stuff. It was very strange. They started he, the the man that was there started talking about um, his trauma from from being a veteran, and she's like, "This these people told me things that I never want to tell anyone. Like I just oh. don't want to tell people what yeah. happened." And so it became there was 
so many times where many of us felt like we couldn't share this with other people because we know they have us read this book called Trauma Stewardship, which is all about people in positions like these where you're um, taking on secondary trauma. Yeah. And then not to mention that a lot of people in the sexual, uh, sexual assault violence prevention world have had violence happen to them. I think a lot of times you don't get into this work unless you have experienced something. And, you know, I would say that probably 100% of, uh, 100% of women and people of minority genders have experienced some sort of violence at some point in their life, probably sexual violence, uh, or harassment of some kind, and probably a shit ton of men, cis men too, because of the world that we live in, and, if people realized that, I think we would be in a different place. <laughs> uh, when I say a different place, I think like a different yes. um, mindset about survivorhood because it's still not talked about enough in my humble onion. Um, did you call it an onion? I love that. <laughs> yeah, I did call it an onion. Your humble onion. <laughs> my humble onion. I love that. Yeah. I say that. I don't know where I got that from, but I say it all the time now. You touched on something so amazing, which is one, the debriefing, and two, the secondhand trauma from that. Working in the police department, my job was records director. And so I was this records director, and part of my job mm-hmm. was to read and confirm that the reports were ready to be what's called approved. You know, and that doesn't mean like sent Mm. somewhere all the time. It's sometimes you're just approving it and it sits there. Sometimes it has to go to the district attorney's office. Sometimes it has to go to the victim advocacy group. Sometimes it, you know, it it all depends on the type of case. I'm sitting there and I'm one person. You know, I'm one person. I'm the only full-time non-sworn individual in that department. And the officers write their reports they individually deal with their shifts and their cases and they write their reports and I'm reading all of them and experiencing all of it in great detail with photos, with tape recordings, with whatever's tied to it. And there were some cases that I didn't even tell Jeff about because I, I was so like, it was so much to take on. And that's why there were only certain days out of the week where I did report review. And it was usually like the end of the week, like the beginning of the week, I would do the reports that had to go to places like, you know, arraignments and stuff that they have to be done within 48 hours. So the reports have to go within 24 and the full case review, I would usually do at the end of week. So I would have the weekend to recover because individually they're dealing with a little bit of what's happening in my community that I live in walk in and then I'm sitting there reading all of it and everything that's happening to kids happening to women and men and everything and I wish we had the tools like that book you're talking about I wish they understood that a single person taking that on for a department is not healthy. You know, I would talk to my therapist about it and, you know, she made this comment where she's like, well, the sergeants review it first. Do you even have to read it? And it's like, yeah, that's the job. <laughs> like, like I, I could skim, you know, like I, I became like a speed reader where basically it's mm-hmm. like, are they typing the right names? Are they putting the right pronouns are they you know like what's in here is it the correct sergeant's name is it the correct this is it this you know where is it going and I got it down to like a science where I was just looking for elements and not taking in content but when I saw there were certain cases and certain crimes I would see on the face page and if the photo tab was lit up because the lit up tabs mean there was content I wouldn't even look at the photos because it's Mm -hmm. like I, I don't I don't need to see it. Like, I don't need to see it. Um, but part of no. part of my job was to make sure that the photos they attached correlated to the case and they didn't mess up and accidentally attach a different case's photos to the case. And, you know, we had this one really heinous crime happen to a child. I made 
the officer remove the photos and book them into evidence on a, on a flash drive. And I said, no one should ever have to see these. And I, mm. I despise you for making me see these, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it, it was just yeah. like, yeah. think, you know, but they don't think of that because it's day to day for them, you know, it's, and they don't have debriefing. They don't have anyone to really talk to about that sort of thing. And I didn't get debriefed on any of it. So. Yeah, so now I don't know what I was gonna say. Um, about dealing with burnout. Oh yeah. So I did wanna say when I experienced burnout and I'm at that place of collapse, and it's not necessarily like physical collapsing, right? You know, it's just kind of like this, this moment of I can't do another thing. And even the idea of like driving to a McDonald's to get myself something to eat is too much. So like when I'm in that headspace, it's hard to imagine not being there. Mm -hmm. And some of the things I do that help, this is kind of bizarre, but I will do math. <laughs> and I know this. So bear with me here, everyone. When I do mathematical problems, whether it's like on my phone or in my head, I go into a space that is absolute and there's no gray areas because math is a science and it's not hypothetical science. It's literally like these equal this. And when you do these to these things, it will equal this. And when you apply these things, you will get this. And there's something incredibly comforting and escaping about that. And it does something that kind of resets me. And so if you also do math to reset yourself, please let me know because I'm alone in the world. Yes, um, yes. I, yeah. I almost think that that's more grounding than it is escaping. When I think about escaping, I think it is. When I think about escaping, I think about, you know, how people will distract themselves with some sort of content, uh, a book, a TV show, a movie, um, a comic, you know, whatever it may be, um, a podcast perhaps, oh. um, to, to get away from reality for a little bit. And that feels like yeah. more escapism, distraction kind of thing. But to, to go to math and, you know, this thing that is real, like, and always is the same, um, mm -hmm. that feels like a grounding technique to me, which I kind of love that, you know? Yeah. I love that too. Cause I thought I was like escaping into like my my previous self, you know, like my academic self. And, oh, well, that's another you know, way of thinking of it. Hmm. Yeah, but I also like that it is a grounding thing. I also, you know, something we kind of talked about in the first podcast is I tend to really revert to my child self a lot when I'm in overwhelm. Hmm. And I allow myself to do that because when I've done all the things to create collapse and overwhelm and exhaustion for myself, it's because I've allowed my warrior self to take over in a way that is severely unhealthy. And when my child self is allowed to be like let loose and, you know, like, like let off the leash in the park, so to speak, um, you know, here's your candy bar and you're leashless. Um, <laughs> it allows my warrior self to take a break then my child self gets this like opportunity to, you know, like take care of me and it's yeah. fun and it's light and it's exciting. And so when you say like, oh, you have this wonderment about you, it's like, yeah, I'm my child self like all the time lately, <laughs> um, but not for bad reasons. I try, I try to keep a healthy balance because when I'm in warrior mode, I'm not cool like at all, you know? And I don't mean cool as in like, ooh, you're cool. Like, like I'm not chill at yeah, all. Yeah, like, like no, like just not at all, like able to relax. Um, right. Yeah. And that's not a good place to be for a long period of time. Not at all. 
not at all. Yeah. What I do for self-care right now is, um, well, not much because I've gotten to a bad spot. But <laughs> what I normally would do and what I have to do now, make time for some of my more artistic and like spiritual ventures. Um, like meditating or writing poetry or... I'm a little bit of a witch. I like to do I like <laughs> rituals. I like to do, um, you know, nature walks. I will go into nature to collect some things for my bottle spells. I guess I'm like really revealing the side of me that I don't tell many people about. Um, now I the world knows. Love it. <laughs> um, yeah. I or came like... out as a witch to my parents at Christmas. Um, I love that. <laughs> but I. Here's the issue, though. I don't think I'm actually a witch. I think I'm accidentally a witch. Like, yeah, I think you're I've, telling me about that. Yeah, it's like I had crystals in my windowsill, and then I was doing, like, rituals around the new moon, and but having no idea why or what I was doing. It just felt right. And then I get on TikTok, and there's all these people who are like, yeah, this is what we do, and this is our ritual, and this is my spell, and this is... I'm like, oh, my God, I'm a witch. I'm a witch. Everyone, <laughs> everyone, I'm a witch. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love it. Yeah. I love it. And my mom's like, you're not a witch. And I was like, I don't know, mom. I don't know. I, I don't know. I've been doing this and it's happening. So I think I am. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. I have psychic I abilities that. and I don't think they came out of nowhere. Like <laughs> That is for another episode. True. <laughs> Truth, truth, oh truth. man um do some self-care and some care tasks for yourself wish you the worst kind of day the worst monday <laughs> wherever you're listening to this um i hope it's absolutely terrible <laughs> <laughs> i too for balance and restoration in the world hope that with hate and darkness that you have a terrible day thank you Thank you. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. It was frozen for just a second and I was going to go tap on it, but it probably looked really yeah. weird. But it's like, I can't believe my brain, my lizard brain was like, oh God, he's going to touch me. And then it's like, wait, he's across the country right I'm now? I'm not. <laughs> I, I can't. I, even if I wanted to. <laughs> but also like my response is like, Ugh. I know. <laughs> I'm sorry that I scared you that much. My gosh. <laughs> <laughs> well, this will go on the bloopers, that's for it. sure. <laughs> <laughs>